Father, uh, what we just sang is so true. You were, you are, you always will be God. You're always faithful. You always bring us back to you. You are the God of comfort, the God who speaks tenderly to us, the God who has given us everything we need in your son, Jesus. All we have is Christ. And I'm reminded of this verse, Lord, that you uh, spoke through the prophet Isaiah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Your word, God, is eternal. Our thoughts are finite, our actions are finite and temporal, but your word, God, will always remain. And we want to hear that word now. Would you be with us? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold the wondrous things of your law? And God, in ways that we need to be challenged, would you challenge? In ways that we need to hear a word of comfort, would you comfort us? But in all things, would you give us eyes for your son, Jesus Christ? We pray this all in his name. Amen. So it's Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Remember, Jesus has just called 12 apostles to himself. These are men from various backgrounds. And right as he's done that, Jesus returns home, picking up in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind, speaking about Jesus here. And the scribes who came down for Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whoever blasphemy and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they said to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, Jesus. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. So before we dive into this passage, let me just remind us kind of where we've been. Let me refresh our memories at where we're at. We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. Again, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been looking at passages in Mark for the better part of a month or so. And this is really what we've been saying. The, the, the Gospel of Mark is a biography of the life of Jesus. It is a biography that announces the gospel or the good news, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And over our time together, we've seen that this good news is expansive. In fact, it has so many facets that it's hard to get your hands around how good this good news is. One facet of this good news is that Jesus is the son of God. That is a remarkable claim, but it's one facet of this good news. Remember, Jesus, in our first week when we studied this gospel, 
Jesus went out to this man named John the Baptist, and he was being baptized by John. And as Jesus was coming out of the water, Mark recounts that everybody saw the heavens torn open, and a voice came from heaven that said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the good news, that God has come to live with us. God the Son has come to earth. Another facet of this good news that we've looked at is that Jesus is the better Adam. Adam was the first human being created by God. And as that first human being failed in his relationship with God, and as you and I fail in our relationship with God, this Jesus, the better Adam, succeeded where you failed. It's the good news that Jesus is for us what we can never be for ourselves. But maybe the most constant facet that you see throughout Mark's gospel is the good news that in Jesus, God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom has broken into life now. And I don't know of a better picture of what that looks like than a children's book. My kids and I, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible, which you can actually pick up downstairs if you're interested. But the Jesus Storybook Bible pictures heaven like this. I love what the author writes. Her name is uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones. She imagines God's future kingdom, what life will be like when Jesus returns to earth again in this way. She says, the kingdom of God is where God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding, no more crying or being lonely or afraid, no more being sick or dying, because all those things are gone. Everything sad will come untrue. God's broken world will be mended. I was speaking at my kids' uh, school the other day, and we were doing a kids' chapel. This was two Thursdays ago, and I was talking about this very theme, about how God's kingdom will one day come and meet our earth. And I asked all the kids, remember, I'm talking to fourth graders, fifth graders, all the way down to preschoolers, and I asked them, what will God's kingdom be like when it comes here on earth? And one kid raised his hand, and his brother, I know his brother, has hearing problems, so he can't hear well. And he said, when God's kingdom comes, I won't have to shout for my brother to hear me. And then he said, oh, and my cat will not lick me anymore. <laughs> I agree to that. I hate cat licks. Uh, but the good news, that's, that's such good news that Jesus, the son of God, and the better Adam, God and man, has brought shades of his kingdom into this world. That's why, did you know Jesus' first words when he started ministry were this, he came and pronounced this message. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's why Jesus, when Jesus appears, remarkable things start to happen. Shades of then, that future kingdom, start to break in now. Demons are cast out. Sick people are healed Lepers are cleansed. The lame who can never walk begin to walk again, and sinners are forgiven. Remember in high school, you used to draw Venn diagrams, right? You'd take one thing and another thing, and you'd say how they're different, but where they overlapped, that's where they were similar. It was that in that middle piece where things collided. That's what the kingdom of God has done in the coming of Jesus. The world then has come and visited the world now, and his kingdom has overlapped. 
And naturally, you would expect this, right? As Jesus' kingdom begins to expand, he starts his ministry in Capernaum. As it expands, he begins to attract the attention of people from all walks of life. JP reminded us of this last week. He told us that great crowds followed Jesus, great crowds from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. A crowd from all over the ancient Near East is flooding toward Jesus to come and see what this kingdom is about. And from this crowd, Jesus calls 12 people, 12 apostles, 12 people who will be his closest followers and inner circle. It's reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is Jesus saying, I'm forming a new kingdom here on earth. But it's at this point in Jesus' ministry, in his good news announcement of his kingdom, that he begins to meet serious resistance. And this good news is not just questioned by those bringing resistance. It's not just struggled with in some way. No, it's actively resisted with all the force that they can possibly muster. And so this morning, we're going to look at two things. First, we're going to look at the resistance brought against Jesus. And secondly, we're going to look at Jesus' response to that resistance. And the story begins in verse 20. We pick up the story, chapter 3, verse 20. And Jesus is at home again. You see that, that Jesus is at home again here in Capernaum. And just like at other times when he was at home, a large crowd is gathered around Jesus. And it says, people are so eager to hear from Jesus and witness his works that nobody can even eat. A sandwich cannot be found in this place. Okay? He's being pressed in from every side. And here's what you have to understand about this scene that you see here in verse 20, is that during this time, crowds made people nervous. It's very similar back in the 19th century in the United Kingdom. During that time, there was huge labor tensions, right, between those who had the means of production and those who did the work and the labor. And there was labor turmoil all throughout the United Kingdom. And what would happen is after people worked these long days, they would often gather after hours and they would gather in secret places in order to plot protest and sometimes in some cases even revolt against the government because of what they saw as unfair labor practices. So what happened is the UK government, the parliament, passed anti-gathering, unlawful assembly laws which prohibited people from gathering in large groups because they were nervous, if too many people start to band together, that could mean uprising. That could mean revolt. That could mean that power is going to be overturned. That same thing is happening when people are looking at Jesus. A crowd made government officials nervous. It made them nervous because it signaled insurrection could be at foot. And their fears were actually underpinned a lot of times by real trouble in the year 166 BC. So this was, you know, not too long before Jesus arrived on the scene. There was a man by the name of Mattathias. Write that name down if you're looking to name babies anytime soon. <laughs> Mattathias Maccabeus. He led a revolt against the governing authorities that were in Judah at the time. At that time, the Greek and Syrian empire was over the area of Judah and he overthrew the entire government, established a new Jewish government in the area of Judah, and it reigned for almost 100 years. So that is the history in people's mind when they start seeing crowds of people starting to gather. They think 
revolt might be afoot. Remember the last person that we saw gather a crowd in the Gospel of Mark? The last person to gather a crowd to the extent that Jesus gathered a crowd was John the Baptist. And we learned in week one what happened to John the Baptist. Not long after John started gathering people from all over the Mediterranean and all over the ancient Near Eastern world, not long after that, John was arrested. John was put in prison. John was executed. John would eventually be beheaded by Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of the area of that time. So back to our story. Verse 21, here's Jesus. Again, he's attracting a crowd. He's gathered 12 disciples reminiscent of a new kingdom. And notice what it says, verse 21. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. See, some commentators, they'll say about this that, well, everybody in Jesus' family thought that his teachings were just too radical or the miracles that he was doing were just too spectacular, and that's why they think he's out of his mind. I'm convinced that what they think he's out of his mind for is they think he has no concern for his life. Jesus, do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize you're about to get yourself killed? Do you remember what happened to John? What are you thinking? Gathering a crowd like this again? I remember when I was in California, my wife and I, in our first year of marriage, we used to live in California, and we didn't have a lot of money, so we were trying to find a good place to vacation. We thought we'd go from Los Angeles and we'd go up to San Francisco. And Megabus, at the time, was running a deal where you could go two people up to San Francisco and back for just $100 a person. That was a pretty good deal. So we took the Megabus up there, and while we were up there, the Dodgers were playing the Giants. And when we lived in L.A., we thought, well, of course, we'll, we'll root for the home team. We'll root for the Dodgers. So we put on our blue jerseys and our Dodger hats, and we go to what at that time was City Park in San Francisco to watch the Dodgers, the hated rival of the San Francisco Giants, play one another. You might anticipate where this is going because we didn't have a lot of money. We weren't sitting in the club seats. We were sitting in the nosebleeds where people got a little bit rowdy. And the second that we took our seats, all of a sudden, all the eyes looked toward us. There were people in front of us who were making hostile remarks about those stupid Dodger fans and how could you wear that in here? And it got so bad that in the fifth inning, I was thinking, we actually have to leave here because this could turn pretty ugly. I thought I was seriously gonna have to call my father-in-law and say, hey, I know I've only been married to your daughter for less than a year, but she's in the hospital right now. That's how tumultuous it was. And that's really what's on Jesus' family's mind as they see him gathering a crowd. They're thinking, man, you are going to get yourself killed. And you can see, verse 22, they had every reason to be concerned for Jesus' life. In verse 22, Jesus has attracted the attention of the authorities. Verse 22 says that scribes from Jerusalem were part of the crowd. Word about the kingdom of God has rippled out and spread all the way from Capernaum all the way to Jerusalem. And these scribes from Jerusalem are from what's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were a ruling class of Jewish people made up of 70 chief priests and elders and uh, scribes of the Jewish people, and they were the final and highest court of appeal in Jewish law. 
and the Sanhedrin have sent these scribes from Jerusalem to see what Jesus is about and notice what they came to do. They didn't come to be inquisitive. If you look at verse 22, they don't come to investigate and ask Jesus questions. No, they came to bring an inquisition. They've heard about the things Jesus has done, what he said. They probably even saw some of Jesus' miracles. If you look in the other gospel accounts, this interaction with the scribes happens right after Jesus casts out a demon. And their conclusion is not, this is good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. No, their conclusion, verse 22, they say the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So who is Beelzebul? Well, it's another name that is familiar in the Bible. The, another name that, that you see is Beelzebub. Beelzebub means Lord of the high place, or it can mean Lord of the house. And it's actually a reference to a god of the Old Testament known as Baal. Now, Baal was the most well-known god of the surrounding nations of Israel, but the Jewish people over time took this name, Beelzebub, and they deliberately distorted it and started calling him Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap, okay? So you can see the hostility in this inquisition that's being brought toward Jesus. They are saying, this is not the Son of God. This is not a king. This is the Lord of the dung heap. He casts out demons by the power of Satan. This is what they're saying. They're saying, this is not the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of Satan. You hear the hostility, don't you? That's the alarming resistance to this gospel and the good news of the kingdom of God. Back to the Jesus Storybook Bible. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she depicts this interaction between Jesus and the scribes. And she refers to the scribes and the elders, the chief priests, as the important people. And these important people, when they see Jesus heal and forgive a sinful woman, extending his kingdom, she writes that the important people and leaders were cross. They thought Jesus should not be kind to these types of people. The important people shook with anger. They didn't believe Jesus was God's son. The more Jesus loved and helped people not like them, the more they hated him. And this is ironic, or it's tragic, that it's the important people, the leaders, the scribes, the ones who are enlightened, the ones who are educated and learned, they are the most blind to the inbreaking of God's kingdom and they are the most resistant to it. While on the other hand, it's the sinful. It is those who are children. It's the weak. It's the marginalized and the lowly who actually see Jesus for who he really is and who God gladly welcome his kingdom. Now, I want to stay on this point because we brought this up a couple weeks ago when we were talking then about the scribes and the Pharisees. But both of these groups had this resistance to Jesus and the resistance to his kingdom because we saw there that their resistance was ultimately because they saw Jesus as a threat. And their resistance was not because they were bad people and somehow the marginalized, the children, the weak, the sinful, they were good people. No, the Bible is clear about this. Everyone's a bad person. 
I'm a bad person. You're a bad person. Welcome to Deer Creek Church. <laughs> we are all sinful and we are all enemies of God. The Bible is clear about that. There is no distinction between good people and bad people. We are all bad people. But what made the scribes and Pharisees see Jesus as a threat and God's kingdom as something to be resisted is that they didn't think they needed Jesus to get into that kingdom. That was their biggest fault. That was what made them resist so strongly. They thought they were important enough to be in God's kingdom already. That is the single greatest barrier, the single greatest resisting force to God's kingdom. It's a heart that believes it is so good, it is so important, it is so pure that it's already enough to be in God's kingdom. In other words, you need to hear this. Your sin, your wickedness are not barriers to God's kingdom because it's the sinful and wicked heart that realizes it needs Jesus to be into his kingdom. It's the sinful and wicked heart that sees Jesus and God's kingdom as good news to be embraced, not a threat to be resisted. And we're going to say more on that a little bit later. But for now, back to our text, in the face of this resistance, Jesus responds. And I want you to see he responds in three ways. The first way he responds is with logic. The second way he responds is with the conclusion that the scribes should have reached. And then thirdly, he responds with a warning. A severe warning that's almost unparalleled in the rest of the Bible. So first, notice Jesus responds with logic. In effect, he's saying, scribes, what you're claiming is completely illogical. He says that in verse 23. He called the scribes to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. If Satan is attacking Satan, if the prince of demons is casting out demons, that is utterly illogical, isn't it? You ever see the movie Major League? There's a region in the movie Major League. It was filmed in 1989. It's the reason it's a comedy. It's a story about the 1989 Cleveland Indians. And... The 1989 Cleveland Indians hire a new owner, they get a new owner, and the owner's objective is to systematically destroy the Cleveland Indians. She wants to make the team so terrible that they'll be sold to Florida where she wants to live, because nobody wants to live in Cleveland. I understand that sentiment. So what she does is she gets a bunch of second-rate baseball players, she gets people from the penal leagues to play, people who are uh, convicted convicts, and people who have no possibility of competing at the major league level in an effort to tank the team. It's a comedy because who would do that? Who, who would do that? What owner of a sports franchise would intentionally seek to destroy their own franchise? What benefit would that serve? It's illogical. It's absurd. Although sometimes I do think the Colorado Rockies are taking a page out of their playbook. <laughs> it's illogical. And here are the scribes. The scribes, you see, they see the promised kingdom of God overlapping in this broken and sinful world. And their response is, Satan is casting out Satan? What, what do you expect the kingdom of God to look like then? After all, demons are cast out, the lame walk, sick are healed, lepers are cleansed, sinners are forgiven. If it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then... The kingdom of God is at hand. 
right? But the scribes have concluded the illogical. They resist and they conclude the exact opposite. That's response number one. Jesus responds in another way. Verse 27. And in this response, he tells them what they should have concluded. By seeing all Jesus' miracles and hearing what they had heard, he responds with what they should have concluded. Verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Here's what you concluded, scribes. You concluded that I'm akin to Beelzebul. You concluded that I'm Lord of the dung heap, that I'm akin to Satan, Beelzebub, the Lord of the house. I'm driving out demons by the prince of demons, that the kingdom of God is actually the kingdom of Satan. What you should have concluded is that I am the one who has entered Satan's house and I have bound him. I have entered the strong man's house and I have taken away his power and the kingdom of God is moving in full force on earth. You should have concluded that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. You should have repented and believed in me to enter that kingdom, but you didn't. You didn't. There is only one person who has more authority and power than Satan, and it's God himself. You should have concluded that God has visited earth in my flesh, but they were completely blind to it. You should have welcomed welcomed me, repented, and believed. And then lastly, number three, Jesus, remember, he responds with logic. That's how they should have responded, number two. But then lastly, he responds with a severe warning. And this warning is actually front-loaded with a promise. And it's an amazing promise. It's a promise in verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus first says to anybody who will hear him, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, that's his way of saying, hey, listen up. And he says, There is no sin that you can commit that will disqualify you from God's kingdom. There is no sin that you can do that Jesus will not forgive. There is no sinner so wretched, no sinner so lost, no sinner so bad that Jesus will not love. And that is the amazing promise of Jesus. There is no sin you can commit that will remove you from the grace of God. If you believe in Jesus, he will forgive any sin that you commit. I I used to think, you know, before I became a Christian, I used to think, and and I was convinced, there's no way that God could love me. There's absolutely no way. If he knew the things that I did, he would not forgive me. He could not embrace me. He could not love me or ever take me back to himself. There was no chance that that could happen. Many years of my young adulthood, they were spent in drinking, drunkenness, doing drugs, sleeping around, betraying friends lying to people to get my way, manipulating people to do my will. But then here's this promise. Here's this promise that all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. And even more amazing than that is that Jesus continues to forgive sins in me and in people who follow him. Just this uh, past weekend, this was yesterday, my daughter Lainey, She's uh, hanging out on her bed, and I don't know exactly what happened. She's downstairs, but she goes to put her head down on her pillow and hits the, the baseboard or the headboard of the bed, cracks her head open, and she starts bleeding. And she's crying downstairs, you know, crying bloody murder. And I'm thinking, what is it now? 
And she keeps crying and she keeps crying and she keeps crying. And finally she stops and she comes upstairs and she's still whimpering, crying, but she goes to play with our new dog. Why we got a new dog, don't ask me later. But she goes to play with her new dog. And I notice the back of her head is matted with blood. So I go up to her and I say, Lainey, did you pour paint on your head? And she says, no, I heard it. And I, I look and she's got a gash about an inch long and about a half inch deep in her head. And so I'm freaking out. My heart's racing, and all of a sudden, you know, the dog starts barking. Eli comes up, and he's wondering what happened, and the babies come up, and they're wondering what happens because we have twin three-year-olds. And I'm looking at Lainey's head. I'm trying to stop the bleeding. Things are going crazy, and then Jane goes and grabs a Bible. My little three-year-old goes and grabs a Bible, and she starts flipping through it. It's just this cute, nice pastoral scene, right? And <laughs> my daughter, Annie, starts saying, Daddy, pulling my, my shirt, Daddy, Jane grabbed the Bible. Jane grabbed the Bible because we usually read the Bible together. She wants me to read the Bible, right? My kids are sanctified. I'm not. But she's, she's tugging on my shirt. Meanwhile, I'm trying to stop this blood. So I turn to Annie and I say, Annie, will you just stop it? Before I became a Christian, I was convinced there is no way God could love me. None. But what amazes me is that he still loves me. That there is no sin that will not be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. That is a promise from the lips of Jesus. Jesus says, you cannot out-sin my grace. There is not enough sin or darkness in you to disqualify you from my kingdom. All sins will be forgiven. That is the amazing promise. But there is one sin that will not be forgiven. There is one unpardonable sin, according to Jesus. It's in verse 29. Jesus says, but... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The warning is this. Scribes, if you're going to come down here and you're going to start saying the things that you're saying, if you're going to come down here and start saying that what I'm doing is a part of the kingdom of Satan, you're not involved in an abstract theological debate here. You are on the edge of an eternal, unforgivable sin. And here's why. I will forgive any sin, Jesus says. But if you start attributing my work to Satan... Realize, Satan is not in the business of forgiving sins. So if you're going to start attributing what I'm doing to him, who are you going to turn to in order to be forgiven? I'm the only one who has forgiveness of sins. And if you think that's the kingdom of darkness, you will never come to me. And you, you will never seek forgiveness in me. I am the only way to enter the kingdom of God. And if you're so convinced you're already in it and I'm bringing the kingdom of darkness, you will never enter it. And you will walk eternally to your own destruction. 
Now, some of us are very concerned with committing this sin. I, I'm, I'm very uh, cognizant of that. I've read this passage. I've wondered, have I committed this sin? And it can keep you up at night. I heard a story recently of a, of a friend who, he had went to some church, and this church believed in the speaking of tongues are for today. And this church was probably less concerned, and I'm not meaning to bash this church. Um, I'm sure they're great people. I, I'm, I'm sure they preach the gospel. But it seemed at this time, anyway, when this guy came in, he would, they were more concerned with having him speak in tongues than believe in Jesus. So what they did is they brought him into a back room, and they laid hands on him, and they were praying fervently that this guy would speak in tongues. And after a while of nothing happening, this guy felt just very nervous, very odd being in that situation. So he just kind of started mumbling some things, thinking that, well, okay, that'll, that'll appease them. And you know, they were very grateful for that. They started praising God. And as he walked away from that, he thought, I committed the unpardonable sin. I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I pretended like I can speak in tongues, but I didn't just because I was pressured in this situation. And he thought, oh, I have done it. I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin. Jesus will never forgive me. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind here. Realize who Jesus is warning here. Okay, in any crowd of people that follow Jesus or any crowd really that hears about the name of Jesus, there's likely to be three types of people. There are those who are confused, there are those who are convinced, and there are those who are contentious, okay? Those of you who are confused, Jesus welcomes that. Jesus welcomes questions. If people have sincere questions about who he is, what he's done, Jesus welcomes that if you have a teachable spirit and you have curiosity. He wants to be your teacher. He wants to be your savior. There's a second group of people. There are those who are already convinced. You believe in Jesus. You have faith in him. You trust in his promise. And if that's true of you, then the Bible says you have been sealed with his Holy Spirit. Romans 5, verse 5 says, Because God's love through faith in Jesus, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So that's the promise that if you have faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. So the Holy Spirit will not allow you to commit this sin. The Holy Spirit will not allow you to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And he will bring his work to completion in you until Jesus returns. Now there's the third category though. It's the contentious. And within this category, there's, there's really two groups. There's first, there are those who are ignorantly contentious. There are people who say things about God, who say things about the Holy Spirit, who say things about Jesus, and they don't know what they're saying. Their comments are out of ignorance. Their comments are out of a place of not really knowing what's true. Does that make it right? No. But if they believe and follow Jesus and turn to him for, for forgiveness, they can be forgiven. But there is a second group. And I believe this is who Jesus is talking to. They are the studied and contentious. These scribes knew who Jesus was. These scribes knew the scriptures and they knew the gravity of what it is that they were saying about Jesus and about his kingdom. And even when they confronted Jesus, they stayed committed to their position and their resistance became even stronger. Now, if you're here this morning, I want to let you know that is very likely that you do not fall into this category. The fact that you want to learn from the Bible, the fact that you want to know Jesus, you want to follow him, those are all 
very, very good signs that you have not committed this eternal sin. You most certainly have not committed it. And that's because any concern over sin that you might have or grief over sin or fear that you have blasphemed the Spirit, that is good evidence that the Holy Spirit's actually in you. Okay? But here's the warning, and it's Jesus' warning. It is possible that some may be here and you might be studied. You may have studied the claims of Jesus. If you know what he came to do, if you know that he died for sins and was raised again from the dead, if you know his work, if you know the scriptures and his call on your life, and you resolutely, adamantly, consistently, and in hostility resist that good news, then you are on the edge of doing something that is eternally damning. The same scribes who resist Jesus here By the time Jesus is being crucified for sins, some three years later, they're witnessing the death of Jesus. They're witnessing the death of the better Adam, the Son of God, with their own eyes, and they look up at Jesus, and they say, Mark 15, verse 31, So the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. See, they see the crucifixion for the salvation of the world and their response is to mock it and deride it and to turn their hearts away from it. Our hearts, our logic, our conclusions about Jesus can become so hostile, so resistant so resolutely set against Jesus and his kingdom that we can stand eyes open witnessing the salvation of the world and mock it to our own eternal damnation. There is a great, amazingly true, unbelievable, comforting promise from Jesus. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But right next to it, a sober warning, guard your heart. Because whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And it's with that, Jesus is revisited by his parents who were looking for him. Remember how the passage started. They were looking for him saying, he's out of his mind. Where is Jesus? They went to go and seize him. And as they came to him, the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to Jesus, your mother and your brothers, hey, they're outside. They're seeking you. And Jesus answered them. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Right there along this promise and warning, Jesus tells us, here's how you enter his kingdom. Here's how you become a part of the family of God. You long to do the will of God. And it's not, it's not confusing what Jesus means by that. In John chapter 6, He tells us what it looks like to do the will of God. To do the will of God, Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If that's you this morning, if you believe in Jesus, then you have been brought into his family, you are a part of his kingdom, and every sin that you have committed has been forgiven. And that's what this table reminds us. This is the 
table of King Jesus. And he said that this bread represented his body, which was crucified. His body, which was given for us so we could be forgiven. And he says that this cup is the new covenant in his blood. It represents his blood, which was shed so that you could be cleansed of all your sins, past, present, and future. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus again had a meal. This time, it was just with his 12 disciples, his followers. And at the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, after they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood shed for the remission of all your sins. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, he said, you proclaim his death until he comes again to bring his kingdom in full. If that's you this morning, come and feast and eat, come and taste this meal, which is a foretaste of that kingdom to come and a reminder of Jesus' death on your behalf.